but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is a special episode of The Body Serve in that today, which is Friday, Aretha Franklin, her funeral happened. And for us, Aretha was one of our, our big queens, right? Like for me, she's part of what I say, my holy trinity. Whitney Mariah, Aretha, really interchangeable depending on the day. Mm. Yeah, see, I think Aretha transcended all that diva stuff. Like, she was not... She was, of course, one of the big voices, one of the great divas of the 20th century, but she's so much more. She's so important to American culture, music in the West in general, that, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a massive loss. And so this episode, if you don't normally pay attention to the liner notes or the timestamps, definitely do so. If for no other reason than to see the puns and the the theme of Aretha that we've woven through this episode with the titles. Now, ostensibly, this is actually our mid kind of mid tournament U.S. Open review. I feel like some things have happened this week. Well, typically we do one mid tournament episode when it comes to the slams. Potentially, we'll do two after. Labor Day Monday or the quarterfinals mm-hmm. or what have you. Depending on what kind of bullshit happens this weekend. Exactly, because the reason why we're here today is because so much bullshit has happened. I mean, the last two days has been mild compared mm-hmm. to the first three days. I mean, I get it. It's been very, very hot in New York. People are a little bit grumpy, sweaty, even delirious from the heat. But I cannot remember the first four days of a Grand Slam creating this many distinct Mm storylines that had nothing to do with tennis. I agree. I wonder what the reason is for this metastasis of fuckery. Mm -hmm. Because it's not... You make it sound malignant. It's very clinical. (laughs) And um, it's not that we've been without this in previous slams. I feel like we've been building to this point. In the last few years, it seems like every slam, there's, there's some big issue. Remember, there was the the Australian Open with the match fixing. And then there was Mm -hmm. the Tennis Sandgren stuff. There was Serena coming back at the French Open for a first slam. In recent memory, there's always been one really big story to take hold in kind of an official way, tennis-related. You know, these are official tennis stories. Mm. This was a lot of petty bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) But it was also very off the cuff, like responding to the events of that day. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, here is the ESPN story that we're going to package this morning and give Mm -hmm. to you. It's like, holy shit, what is going on? We've got Alizé Cornet leading the revolution, changing her shirt on court. We've (laughs) got, I mean... (laughs) We've got Mohamed Layani, who is embroiled, embattled... (laughs) In the fight of his life right now. Uh, Yeah. For a a small pep talk he gave to Nick Kyrgios. We've got Nick Kyrgios, who is the common thread to so much of this. Right. Instigating and being instigated upon by many, many different people. 
You want to talk about keyboard warriors. Nick Kyrgios is one. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of uh, kind of Twitter personalities and journalists get accused of that, but there's no greater keyboard warrior in tennis than Nick Kyrgios. Well, Nick Kyrgios accused Ben Rothenberg of being right. a keyboard warrior just this week. Which is interesting. It was... <laughs> like those in glass houses. <laughs> they see very well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's start with this heat. Now, did you know we were going to have to be dealing with the wet bulb globe temperature again? Because I I barely learned it the first time. Again, as with the first time, I'm not terribly concerned with the ins and outs of it. <laughs> I'm very much a, is it really fucking hot or not kind of right. guy. Well, so this week, obviously, the first uh, three days, especially of the Open, were exceedingly hot. We were talking like mid-90s, but very high humidity as well. Which can make a big difference. And even Sam, Sam Stozer said, Australia gets a bad rap with the heat, but this is worse. Like, these are the worst conditions I've played in. Which is saying something. Mm -hmm. What I liked about the US Open and how they handled this was that after that first day, they said, okay, we're going to institute the heat rule. 10 minute break after the second set in a women's match and after the third set in a men's match. And what's different here is that it had never been done previously for the men. Right. And compared to Australia, I, I appreciated that there wasn't, there weren't like 13, 14 press releases about what the wet bulb temperature was today, how to decipher all this mm -hmm. science. Like you didn't need a Bachelor of Science to understand that it was very hot. It just, they got to the point that said, okay, heat rule, there, bam. And is anybody worse for wear because of it? Well, perhaps Fernando Verdasco and, and Andy Murray. Well, we'll get to that in Their a relationship bit. may be irreparable. <laughs> uh. But, I, I mean, most of the top players were getting through those first few days without incident. Novak Djokovic actually suffered quite a bit from the heat mm -hmm. in his first match against Fuchovic. Or, uh, sorry, his second match. Yes, and thank you to Jacob Bubro for correcting my pronunciation on that. <laughs> We do like to get the pronunciations right on the show. It's challenging we try. quite often, but we do try. I got that Czech phonetic alphabet going all the time. To your point, though, nobody... I didn't hear any pushback about the heat rule because at the end of the day, to be cliche, it made sense. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to have people drop dead out here just because we want to say, well, that's part of the of the sport. You should be able to endure, and if you can't endure, that's... That's a black mark against your fitness. Right. Well, I mean, why were there pushback though? It, they made it easy. If one player wanted the heat rule uh, put into effect, then they both got the break. It wasn't necessary for it to be unanimous. None of that, those petty yes, I, machinations, Yes, I'm agreeing right? with you, but you know when this was a big issue in Australia, not just from tennis insiders, but mm -hmm. from fans as well. Oh, yeah. It was like, well, you know, if, if you can't handle the heat, then that's just too bad. Yeah, but Which is a bollocks It's silly position. because most of the people talking were not actually the ones out there no. doing the work as well. So common sense. Well done, US Open. Mm -hmm. Venus Williams uh, at 38 fought through two long matches in her first two matches. Didn't seem to be complaining about the heat at all, but it was, it was a struggle. That mm -hmm. first match against Kuznetsova, which was high quality, exciting, lasted very nearly three hours. Her second match against Georgie was almost two hours. So you've got five hours logged in the 
very, very hot afternoon weather in New York before playing Serena in the third round. And given that Venus has been very short on match play and the matches that she has had, namely the ones in Montreal, in those she was hobbled, but she still played. Mm -hmm. So her preparation for the US Open was not great. And this comes on the back of having a terrible 2018. Right. It's been a bad year. I mean, the third round finishes at these two majors were an improvement. Mm. And so in that first round when she draws Kuznetsova, I was not expecting her to win. Mm. And I'm at work having a horrible shift, an (laughs) all-timer. And I'm keeping an eye on this score. And you send me a DM when she's up, what, 6-3-4-1. And you're like, oh, it seems like you're having a bad day because I was bitching about it on Twitter. And, you know, but Venus is up 6-3-4-1. And my immediate thought was this bitch. (laughs) Like, does he not know how this works after all these years? And lo and behold, what should have been a a fairly routine two-set match at that point, she had a point to go up 5-1. Venus then finds herself losing the second set 7-5 and having to pull it out in the third. Mm -hmm. Fairly convincingly in the third, but still, that's another hour plus that she added on to the match time and her time on court that absolutely did not help her going forward in this heat. Mm -hmm. She may have added some time as well by hitting zero aces and eight double faults. I mean, the stats weren't great, but she she really gutted that one out. Mm-hmm. Which is what we saw from Venus this week. She's no longer in the tournament because you'll hear, you will you know by now, we're mm. recording shortly after Williams Bowl 30, where Serena clobbered her. Right. Like, equaling the biggest beatdown either has ever inflicted on the other in their career. What we saw tonight and throughout this tournament is that Venus's always willing to fight even if she doesn't have her best at her disposal and i think what we saw with her this tournament were the lingering effects of those injuries specifically on the serve because while she was able to crank up the serve to even 116 117 on occasion tonight the placement and the the lack of power in a lot of those first serves was too crippling to Mm -hmm. overcome right um, what else happened in the early rounds? We had, I mean, Sloan nearly lost to Angelina Kalanina mm-hmm. in the second round. Azarenka, who was to be her third round opponent, just stormed through her first two rounds. And that third round match between Sloan and Vika ended up being very good. It was a pretty tight straight sets win by Sloan. She was really pumped. After winning that, I don't think you see that a lot. She was really excited. She was just as pumped after beating Kalinin in the second round as well. <laughs> she is, she's here to defend yeah, her like title. Yeah, she is really feeling it. I think watching that Sloan second round match, and then also watching, I guess we can head into the the upsets. Watching Muguruza go out to Karolina Mohova, we we got a sense of just again, how deep the WTA is. Because for a lot of folks, they'd never heard of these two players. Mm-hmm. Yet, here is Kalinina giving Sloan just the time of her life in not the way that she's wanting. <laughs> you know, yeah. like coming out and playing spectacular tennis, hitting angles, power, running down everything. And while Sloan was able to get out of that match, Muguruza really could not against Mohova. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, you had gone to bed at that point, but that was some of the most exciting tennis I'd seen in forever, watching Mokova 
pull out that win. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you raved about this young woman, and I have yet to see her play. Can you kind of give us a sense of what it was like to watch her? That sounded like such a formal question. That sounded like an interview question. But, uh, I mean, I'm curious because you you compared compared her to watching Martina Hingis as a youngster. Yeah. And you know I don't get all hyped up about new people at all. No. I was here just minding my own business, doing some odds and ends in the kitchen. And midway through that second set, you know, I was paying some attention to it. I watched a few, a couple of games. I'm like, I need to sit my ass down because this is something else. And picture it. Mohova is getting her way through this point. And she finds herself at net with Muguruza. And Muguruza tries to lob her. Mm. And Mohova, on her backhand side, leaps. And where some would then try and hit a backhand volley or a backhand overhead smash kind of thing, single-handed... Mohova hits a lob. <laughs> she lobs Muguruza uh-huh. on the backhand side, up high, leaping. Can you picture it? She lobs a lob? Kind of. <laughs> well, the okay. ball the ball was... I, I can't even explain it. I, I could not believe what I had seen. Uh-huh. And the, the takeaway there and the point is, she has every shot in the book. She has a, a fluidity to her physical presence on court and the way she moves on court mm. that you just don't see, especially in young players. And perhaps she's 22, maybe because she's had a little bit more time to develop, and we're just seeing her now on the big stage. It's She's more fully formed. But even some of the top players, Muguruza doesn't move like that on court. Mm-hmm. Even some of the players, when they are good movers, they don't look that effortless and classically beautiful in their stroke play at such ease on court. And for every shot that you think that she could hit in one point, she could have done it two or three other different ways, and she did at other points in the match. It was a revelation. And why I compared her to Hingis was, watching Hingis in those formative years, she she was almost amused by what she could do on court, <laughs> right? She absolutely was. She was. And while Mohova has a lot more humility to her play on court, mm. there's that same feeling that I get from watching Like her. a sense of wonder, yes, almost. Yes, absolutely. And it also helps that she wasn't expected to win that match. You know, it's it's your classic case of somebody with the tools in a moment rising to it when nobody expects them mm. to. Like, this was her, her one moment in time. <laughs> now, of course, a number one seed, number one ranked, Simona Halep, went out in the first round to Kaya Kanepi. Does anybody even remember that at this point? I, I know. <laughs> that was the first day. If you maybe haven't followed tennis, that could have been a shock. Kaya Kanepi is one of those players who kind of parachutes in, slays a few big players, and and parachutes right back out again. And She's a defending quarterfinalist, correct? Yep. Beyond that, she has five more Grand Slam quarterfinals to her name, even in some of the tournaments where she hasn't reached the second week she has some pretty big wins in majors Mm -hmm. so this is not a surprise she smacks the hell out of the ball seriously and she seems to just get up for these players these top ranked players and watching that match it wasn't just that she was out hitting Halep that's not something that's unusual Mm. you know when Halep plays these big hitters all the time Kanepi brought a deft touch to that match she was hitting angles volleys doing some 
crazy stuff on the court. And while it's jarring, and it was the first time in U.S. Open history that the top seed had lost in the first round, you know, you get these big, spectacular, calamitous headlines. Right. It really wasn't that surprising, given also Halep's history of not doing well in New York. But... But it also was because we, along with a lot of other podcasts and so-called experts, Mm -hmm. said Simona is one of the favorites, like one of the two to three betting favorites at this U.S. Open, We had said that she had the opportunity to win two slams, to really cement her place at number (laughs) one, to build off of winning Montreal, finalists in Cincinnati. She had really maybe arrived at a point where the track record in New York didn't really matter. Right. But she has had these shocking first round losses before. Even mm-hmm. even being a top player, she's had these big losses in US, in Australia mostly. I, I was just surprised. Obviously Kanepi is a horrible draw, but I hadn't really heard much from her lately, so I, I really didn't know what kind of shape she was in or what she was gonna bring. But Kanepi is still here. She's into the fourth round now and she's gonna face Serena. What are some of the other upsets? Well, for the second major in a row, Grigor Dimitrov loses in the first round to Stan Marinka. Stan lost to Milos tonight, mm-hmm. fairly routinely in straight sets. Uh, Pablo Carreño Busto was a semifinalist last year. He lost to Joao Souza. Stefanos Tsitsipas did not make it to that third round that we were all looking forward yep. to against George. Which just finished. Mm-hmm. He lost. Stefanos lost to Medvedev. Which whom, those two have a history. Yeah. And Chorich kind of ran over Medvedev in straight sets again, like he did earlier in the season. Kazatkina losing to one of these Belarusians, Sasnovich. Sabalenka, Sasnovich, and Azarenka, all three made the third round of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Open. Which is the first time in history for their country. Mm-hmm. Another player you do not want to face in the early rounds, Katerina Makarova. Right. And Yulia Gerges. She was the one who drew the short stack. The this number time. nine seed out. So I, those were really all of the big, like the big upsets. No man. Oh, oh, Caroline Wojniacki. Right. That's a huge one. She got uh, not a great draw. Uh, Serenko has been playing well, if that's what you mean. Yeah. But Serenko in the second round. Caroline is, is still somebody that should be able to win that match. Right. She was fairly honest in her assessment after the match, saying that. You know, Serenko did a lot of things that she thought she should have been doing, you know, and she didn't. Right. Serenko played very well. But what did I say in the preview episode? That if Caroline goes out in the second or third round, no one's going to be surprised. And are they? Do you want a medal? (laughs) (laughs) And Colleen Vandway, who was also a semifinalist here last year. Man, she has had a Jack Sock-esque last few right. months not, it's been, not quite as bad but bad it's been pretty terrible and now having not defended or gotten even some recoup some of her semifinal points from last year she will be clinging to the top 50 in the rankings mm. oh it's my gonna God. be a tough road back mm-hmm. speaking of colleen speaking of upsets a huge upset was that jack sock won a match and almost won two yeah he Went out in the next round, but he did win his first match mm-hmm. since Madrid, way okay. back in May. We have like a minute tops to mention Jack Sock on the episode <laughs> per episode. That's so a- you've just used 20 mm-hmm. seconds. We'll move on. I do want to add, though, that 
we are, we're just coming off Wimbledon, where everybody lost in the first couple of rounds. This has mm. been a fairly smooth sailing event for the for the seeds, the sixty four seeds, yeah. notwithstanding having the top two go out on the women's side. <laughs> <laughs> that still this is yeah. considered fairly normal if you go through the draws there's a whole lot of seeds left yeah by recent standards this isn't that bad tonight was williams bowl 30 venus versus serena 30 the head-to-head is now 18 12 in favor of serena because tonight she reached into her bag and she pulled out her a plus plus game <laughs> I was not looking forward to this at all. I didn't enjoy a single second of it. I'm glad it's over. I was like, cooking I through the entire first set. <laughs> I'm sorry to be such like such a drag here, but obviously I understand how special this is. And, and there was a moment when I was watching sort of them come out on, on court and feeling that this is surreal, like that it wasn't even happening, that 20 years later it couldn't even be happening. And I, I sort of understood the gravity of the moment in that second. And then for the rest of the match, I was I just wanted it to be done. And I, I didn't really, I wasn't invested in the winner. I don't want either of them to lose. Ugh, I don't know. It's so, it's just really hard. And it's getting harder to watch these matches because they're in their mid to late 30s. Because you know they don't have that many more chances left. So whoever loses doesn't have that chance like she loses that chance and you see i think part of it too is that i have pulled you so far over to the <laughs> venus side in the last few years that i think these feelings are actually genuine that, I don't and think... not just lip service oh well they are genuine but i don't think that's that that's why whatever the match itself i mean you watched it it, it was not that exciting venus started quite well and then serena rolled her ankle it must it was the second game mm-hmm and uh, all of the air came out of it. Serena just like turned something on. I don't know if she was eager to end points early, get off the court as quickly as possible, just in case the ankle was a thing. I mean, we didn't see any limitation from Serena's no, movement at all. No. So I don't. I that was a lot of speculation. But she about did that. call the trainer immediately. She did, but I I don't think that spurred her on to even greater mm. heights. I think playing her sister is enough of motivation for Serena to bring her (laughs) A-game. Tonight, nobody was going to beat Serena the way she was playing. Mm -hmm. However, the way she was playing is aided by playing somebody like Venus, who has one mode, who is attacking all the time, who is giving her those flat balls. Mm -hmm. And she's able to just go toe-to-toe, power-to-power, right? Yeah. Again, what I'm looking for and what I was looking for at Wimbledon after she had beaten Gerges in the semifinals and we're like, wow, that was pristine. And then you wondered, how is she going to match up against somebody like Kerber, who mm-hmm. is on the counterpunching spectrum, who gives you a different look, a different ball, stands further back on the return, is able to mix things up more. How is she able to adjust? And man, she looks like she's on a collision course with Sloan Stevens in that semifinal, and that's oh. where we're going to get the full test of whether Serena is well and truly back. <laughs> Absolutely. Tonight, what really impressed me, obviously, the serve seems to be clicking, the return of serve, but it's Serena's preparation and balance on her shots 
being able to anticipate where the ball is coming and being able to redirect down the line was very impressive. The The whole kind of mechanic of her stroke was very fluid and very uh, aesthetically appealing tonight. I think she feels very comfortable on this court and it showed. I can parse her ground strokes in terms of what you were just saying and push back and say, well, it's easier to have good movement when you know it's coming one of two ways at one speed. Yeah. You don't have to change directions, move forward, go back. There were still some movement moments where she had to move forward a little bit, like a ball held up on her a little bit and she Mm. dumped one ball in the middle of the net or she didn't look that great at net the couple times that she moved forward. But that's like neither here nor there, Right. right? But the point is she's able to look that good because she's getting that one ball. She's also serving impeccably well. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can speculate what she looked like against somebody like Kerber or Sloan, but she can bring this serve to that match easily. So we know yeah. that that is there. The serve mm-hmm. is on point. Double-digit aces, a couple double faults toward the end. Uh, but it was it was pristine from Serena tonight. It really was. Uh, the, the thing I worry about is peaking a little too early because typically she is nearly unbeatable in second weeks but when she has to get up emotionally for a match against venus i feel that i I mean had this been a tougher match it would have taken more out of her emotionally she did play venus in the fourth round in 2015 yes the last time they played at the u.s open serena went on to lose to roberta vinci in the semi-final yeah there is a long long way to go from here but her performance was very encouraging. Mm-hmm. And she's got another big hitter next in Kai Kanepi. Right. And we now arrive at the section of the episode where Alizé Cornet is a beacon of all things right and righteous in tennis. Well, what a time to be alive. Did you know that Cornet was going to be the one unionizing the WTA? Leading well, the WTA revolution. It shouldn't be that surprising. <laughs> Leave it to the French. But all jokes aside, I have been so impressed with how Alizé Cornet handled this whole situation from start to finish. Yeah. What happened was that Alizé came back to the court after a break with her shirt on the wrong way. After a heat Mm -hmm. break in between second and third sets. She changed her shirt while she was off court, Mm -hmm. but unfortunately was rushing and put it on the wrong way. She wasn't allowed to leave court again to fix it so she did what she had to do behind the baseline there she took it off real fast and then put it back on the right way she was wearing a sports bra like it was all you know there there was nothing shocking about it and she got a code violation for it there was no fine attached or no point penalty or anything but this really made people upset Mm -hmm. commentators were mad twitter obviously i mean twitter gets mad about everything But they were upset. The WTA issued a statement. Very swiftly. And it was a whole controversy. Because men are out here changing their shirts whenever they want. However many times they want. Men's nipples, to be crass, are everywhere (laughs) to be seen in tennis. And this was all very innocent and modest. This was just a grown woman in a sports bra. And also out of necessity. Right. And to then be given a code violation. What code are you violating? And Mm -hmm. why is it a violation? And so the umpire was doing what the umpire was instructed to do. What they were empowered to do by Mm -hmm. the USTA. Those were the rules 
they were governed by. Still, there is room for interpretation of those rules. Agreed. This is why we have lawyers and judges. They apply their mm-hmm. own interpretations. So after much hullabaloo, the USTA announced that they were revoking that code violation and they were revising their rule so as to not penalize women for changing their clothes while on court. But still saying you have to do it while seated in your chair. Right, which uh, apparently is a very important distinction. I don't know why. Of all the things that Alizé Cornet has lost her mind over on a tennis court throughout the years... Well... She did not in this instance. She was like, (laughs) oh, okay. I guess that's weird. Let's move on. But where like, all those all those gifs of Cornet like what 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 uh, <laughs> the screen the histrionics like those were not here, so you know like when the tough gets going this is re- this is really how she's going to react coolly, in a mature manner. <laughs> so where she really shined was in her press conferences after she was asked about the code violation and she said you know what you know what is quote, 10,000 times worse than what happened to me is the president of my federation, Bernard Giudicelli's comments about Serena. Called him by his birth name. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So she took the time out of her, it was really her moment. Everybody was talking about her, even outside of tennis media. And she said, well, you know what's a lot worse? This bullshit. That is called a pivot. (laughs) That that was some pivot there, Alizé. We see you and we appreciate you. And what I really enjoyed is she said, okay, calm down. I'm going to get all the information first and then we see if we make a revolution or not. (laughs) She was satisfied by the rule change, but her statement indicates to me that revolution is still on the table. (laughs) Which you know I appreciate. I was trying to take a sip of water just now. (laughs) So in this situation, I don't know if we should credit the USTA for seeing the backlash and reacting swiftly, like correcting their mistake. Because we've seen that actually several times this week with the heat rule, with with the cameras Mm -hmm. on Louis Armstrong Stadium, on the new stadium. The camera position was bizarre. It was up in the heavens. Horrible. And it seemed like they didn't even think about it before designing and building the new stadium. And they just swiftly, well, within a couple days, got rid of $1,600 worth of revenue per session. (laughs) Right. They just ripped out some seats and said, we're putting the camera here. I hope nobody bought those seats, by the way. (laughs) I haven't gotten the full story on that. But there has been a pattern, I think... This is good PR, people. This is how you do it. You see a problem, you find somebody who can fix it fast. I'm starting to think that our voices on tennis Twitter are being heard a little bit more. (laughs) You know, it's not impossible. It's possible, too, that within the rule book and the code book and all these different, you know, long-held traditions in tennis, we know that a lot of them are archaic and outdated. And Mm -hmm. it takes a situation like this to bring it to light, to then force people to be aware of it again, or maybe for the first time. And then if you're able to address it and fix it right away, then we can move forward. Like, this is how change should happen. Right. A lot of the tennis traditions are benign. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the wearing white at Wimbledon gets kind of softly challenged every year 
by some players, uh, but generally it's accepted. It's not that big a deal. But there are some traditions that, that could use revising or just total cancellation. Kudos to you, Alizé. You are one quarter of the way to a body serve induction into our Hall of Fame. Oh, one quarter. One quarter. We're keeping an eye on. I you. imagine if like if she storms the Bastille, that <laughs> that's three quarters right there. Uh, if she storms maybe the USTA headquarters. If she gets Judicelli out of office, then she's got it. <laughs> it's a lock. We do have to talk about the catsuit and the tutu. Mm-hmm. Correct. So we we did cover this Judicelli nightmare from last week, this drama that never even needed to exist because it's over. And she's not going to wear the catsuit next year because Serena doesn't repeat outfits. These, he- these headlines, they're clickbaiting, obviously. Yeah. But this this was just absurd. Everybody talking about how Serena is banned from wearing the catsuit. Serena's not repeating an outfit. Mm-hmm. She's not going to be wearing the catsuit again. So this, this idea that she's banned from wearing the catsuit next year is ludicrous. But then when she debuted the new tutu, the Virgil Abloh design, we got a lot of headlines saying, Serena's banned from wearing the catsuit, so she wore a tutu. Like, so As a statement, it's a big the, fuck you to the establishment. <laughs> fuck you, France. It's the so that makes it a cause and effect, yeah. you know? And it's really not. And I do understand the impulse to, to imbue Serena's actions with meaning and purpose Mm -hmm. because she is that person because she is a cultural figure whose actions have consequences as beyonce says she is yes that b that causes all the c (laughs) conversation it's not a it's not a bad word and so i appreciate and i'm happy that we're in a place where serena gets support from a lot of different corners in pop culture and a lot of people are compelled to to come to her defense. Mm-hmm. But I just, I do kind of implore just the most basic common sense. You don't, you don't design and create an outfit in two days. It also belies a total misunderstanding of how kits are made in tennis. Like this design was in the works for a long time. You know, like Serena mm. was, pro- we saw being Serena, this was probably in the works from when she was, not even having the kid yet. <laughs> Olympia uh, might not even have well, been born. maybe not that long, but, but it's certainly before the French Open even happened. Yeah, when you're working with Nike and all these designers or whatever, it takes a long time and planning. Mm-hmm. And Serena is very specific about what she wants to wear and when she wants to wear it. And so the idea that because a week before the tournament, she was banned from wearing the same catsuit that she was never going to wear again, she now comes out in a tutu as a means of bucking the establishment. Mm. It's just absurd. I understand the kind of impulse to take something that was very negative and shameful and write this kind of triumphant narrative to go with it. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And there is a kind of a special burden that comes with being Serena because every single word you say and thing you do is assumed to be a statement. Mm-hmm. And that's just a consequence of being Serena Serena or Beyonce or, I don't know, Michael Jackson or yeah, people of this stature. Everything you do is, is assumed to be premeditated, to have some higher purpose. And uh, that's just 
part of the game when you're when you're this famous and this important to people. But it must be a little annoying. Mm. The bottom line here for me is reading comprehension is important. <laughs> Brush up on y'all's skills. <laughs> Let's talk about the fashions. Aretha, take it away. Taylor Swift. Okay, great, uh, great gowns, beautiful gowns. <laughs> now that was said in jest. We are actually going to be talking about great and beautiful fashions. And some terrible ones mm-hmm. too. You had the first name you wrote down, and I feel a little uncomfortable about this, was Tsitsipas. Uncomfortable Because he's why? like a child. He's 20, 21. 20? He's 19. He's 19? Mm-hmm. Mm, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I, the point, it's not a like a thirsting thing. It's uh-huh. an appreciation of a man in this day and age who can wear the proper length short to fit his body. Mm. It's very important Correct. and not, not something that people get right very often. So when I do see it, I do appreciate it. Mm. Because we see Fernanda Verdasco out here wearing the exact same outfit and not looking as good. I don't care what nobody wants to tell me about that. Whoa. Just You just rewind right there. What? Keep it within the lines. That was, it was below the belt. If you rewind it, you'll hear exactly what I said the first time. <laughs> uh, you wrote here, and I have not addressed it with you yet, but I'd like mm. to on the show. Jonathan likes Maria's outfit, her little jazzer size number. Lies, lies, and more lies. But you wrote that. Uh Uh-uh. You left out a very important qualifier. Mm. I said Jonathan kinda Uh likes Maria's kit. That's enough for me. No, no, no. You you misrepresented my feelings there. I think it's one of her better kits. I do. I think we're going to get the same silhouette every damn time. We are. Uh, but as you know, I am partial to a black kit. A black and white kit is number one in my book. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly black and white. Okay, it's black and white and like there's some gray and some other mm-hmm. stuff or whatever. It had more whimsy than I'm accustomed to seeing from Maria. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a lot more heavy-handed typically from her. With like, right. here's some lace, here's some like custom craft design that's going to be... $150 that a tree could wear. You and know, sometimes sometimes there's symbolism. The Swarovski crystals last year, remember? That was supposed to be some mm-hmm. triumphal moment and... Whatever. Mm-hmm. I just feel like this was... It was simple, it was classy, and whimsical, and I liked it. Kind of. Okay. Kei Nishikori's Uniqlo kit, absolutely gorgeous. I loved the dark purple, the black, the red. It was a, a much more youngish modern version of what roger was wearing which actually i didn't mind i like people really dragged it i liked the white and red okay that version i liked it the all plum burgundy unidentifiable Mm. color get up was a bit much for me it was was, too like red silk pajamas yes it was too much of a departure from what i'm seeing i'm used to seeing from roger and it was too matchy matchy you say that all the time. Mm. You don't like matchy-matchy. You need yeah. some contrast. The thing that I do like about Roger here in the U.S. Open with Uniqlo is we're getting so many different looks. His press conference look where he's wearing a t-shirt with a blazer. <laughs> you know, it's he has to sell, like, everyday looks as well for Uniqlo. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying they all look good, but I appreciate the range. Mm-hmm. The attempts. <laughs> yes. Let me tell you, the Mukhova-Muguruta match was so much fun to watch and such great tennis but also the kits it was the best dressed match of the open so far muguruza looked amazing in black 
and then Mohova had it looked like she was the inspiration for her outfit was the poster art for Drive, which you know mm. I've been very obsessed with lately. Yeah. Going through the whole body serve design thing, that was something that I was thinking of as well. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, I don't know why. That's just what came to mind. That well, that that like Michael Mann nineteen eighties like action movie neon stuff right yes so like the pinks the greens Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but very bright and vivid yeah and with mohova's outfit it was very subtle the the colors the accents of color were so subtle with the black it i was just mesmerized Mm. now one kit that was not subtle was serena's tutu which we haven't really discussed no what is your verdict well the black, the night one, like, I hated it from the jump. Okay. The shoulder, the nude shoulder cutout is what really bugs me about it because it looks like nylon. It looks cheap to me and kind of like a, a little girl's dance costume. And also if it's nude and it's brown, match it to Serena's skin color a little bit more. Like, yeah. the contrast yeah. there just looks a little bit weird. And I know you're going to say that you like the periwinkle. I absolutely or or lavender. I I'm bad with colors, I as hate you know. That one. I really? absolutely despise it. I actually tonight watching her against Venus, she looks great in that one. Mm. Okay, so they both photograph very well. Mm-hmm. They look good in action with the the skirt flowing. As long as you don't see the shoulder cutout, that's that is my verdict. You can disagree if you want, but when I saw the lavender version. There is like a tinge of purple in it, right? Like it's not just baby blue. I saw periwinkle. What is periwinkle? Use Google. <laughs> okay. I also feel like the, the, the cut and the design of the dress is not dissimilar to what she's worn in the past. We just have a tutu. You know, like Fair it's enough. not that yeah. big of a departure. And I don't think it's, it's that triumphant or like groundbreaking mm-hmm. to be being force fed this designer's name yeah what's his name virgil abloh like congrats i do have to say the like the logo in quotes and Mm -hmm. then and then all that basic brand writing on the shoes like is it's just i don't i don't like it it's it's seems very like deep thinker first year philosophy student kind of i just it's like pop art at its most bland to me it's not interesting Shout out to Basilashvili, who wore a hell of a black and white kit. I am mm-hmm. partial to that, as I've said, and he matched it with his racket. And it was extremely tight. Thoroughly enjoyed that kit. One of the big themes of the first five days of the Open has been so many men acting a fool. Isn't that the theme of life? That is the theme of life, but we're, we're being made to believe that the histrionics all come from the woman hormones because they can't control their emotions it's why they can't be trusted in positions of power but men are doing the most this week andy murray and fernando verdasco kind of went at it they took their 10 minute heat break they went back did the ice bath thing murray came back to the court and told the umpire that verdasco had been consulting with his coach that that's against the rules damn it and nobody was back there watching them it was chaos and you need to do something about it fernando was asked about it after the match and said no 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 i was talking to marcos Bagdadis's coach who speaks spanish we weren't talking you know we weren't talking about the match or anything we were just talking because they were in the ni- the next ice bath over or mm-hmm. whatever 
But, as but. we come to find out, Fernando's coach was in the room. And which seems to me <laughs> to be wild. That's wild that the coach should be there. And so Marcos told the press, now you didn't hear this from me, but yes, Fernando's coach was there. And yes, they were talking, but it was all very innocent. They weren't talking about the match or anything. So Marcos kind of proved Andy right in saying that Verdasco's coach actually was there in the room with him, but he maintained that it was all pretty innocent. He also provided evidence that there wasn't much oversight on the heat break. The chaperone that was supposed to be watching the players, Marcos alleged that he wasn't really around. (laughs) And apparently this happened a few times this week that the players didn't know when they were actually supposed to go back on court because nobody told them. It's a strange thing that they instituted the heat rule, but it seems like the application Mm -hmm. needs a little work. Yeah, because who is somebody has to be chaperoning. Somebody has to be making sure crazy shit's not happening. Right. The coach should absolutely not be allowed back there. No. No, no, no. Because it's in the middle of a match. It's not a rain delay or something like that. Remember, Andy speaks some Spanish, and he trained in Spain from a pretty young age. So it's not like something would have been... Some wool would have been pulled over his eye, that something was necessarily lost in translation. <laughs> right. You know, it wasn't some white dude in there while... All these brown people are speaking a foreign language. Right. This gave Nick Kyrgios a prime opportunity to be petty. Because, you know, they already have that beef, he and Fernando Verdasco. And he tweeted something like, well, of course it's Verdasco. It was an easy kill for him. Yeah. In a a week full of L's. Yes. Not on the court, but on social media. (laughs) Kyrgios has been involved in so many social media brouhaha's this week. And the biggest, I can't even say it's the biggest, who can judge the scale of these things? One of the many was when he was playing Pierre-Hugues Hébert in the second round. And he was down a set and three love, playing as he does on occasion, giving the impression that he doesn't care. You know, taking Mm -hmm. wild swings at balls and looking like he wants to be everywhere but the court. And so what does Mohamed Layani do on the changeover at three love? (laughs) Well, Mo walked down from his chair and went over to Nick's chair and seemed to be giving him kind of a pep talk. And somebody isolated the audio or or tried to glean what was being said. And it was a little of, are you injured? Do you want me to call the trainer? But also, I like you. Uh, (laughs) Basically, you're better than this. I want you to do better. You need to get your head in this match was the gist of what was said Mm -hmm. and so i get i get liani's reasoning here his other option is to ding nick for a lack of effort uh such a subjective measure for an umpire to to do Mm -hmm. like I, i don't know what the line is someone can give a poor effort in one game it doesn't mean that they're tanking the match you know and we see this a lot from players who are not nick curios it's not unique to him and Leani's done it many times before. Right. This is not an isolated incident. Mm-hmm. With Bernard Tomic. Uh-huh. So I don't want to cast aspersions on Moe's character. Basically, universally in tennis, everyone says he's a super nice guy. He's very well-liked. No one believes that his intentions are bad. However, I think he does have a little bit of a... He enjoys the spotlight. Let's say he he has a big personality and he likes to show it in his umpiring. 
And in some ways that is antithetical to being a chair umpire because you're supposed to kind of fade into the background. Like mm -hmm. that that's your job, right? The USTA announced that they were going to be investigating this situation. They wanted to know what was said and they needed to assess whether it was appropriate for an umpire to to act in that manner. Was he disadvantaging Herbert? And that is possible. I mean, Nick came back from that changeover at, at like a different player. And that's not to say that Mo's intervention had anything to do with that. But if you are Pierre over there, could you be thinking, what the hell did they talk about? And why am I losing so bad right now? It, <laughs> you know, it was bizarre. And so it had a lot of people talking, had the commentators talking. A, f a few of the commentators said that's totally inappropriate. That should not happen. We're talking about causation here a lot on this episode. There's no way to, to know whether Leanne's intervention, so to speak, caused Nick to play better. Right. And, uh, that's, and that's really beside the point. Okay. At the very minimum, this was a bad look from Leanne. Mm. Nobody's saying, like you said, that he wanted to change the course of this match. It's about what his role is as a tennis umpire. Mm -hmm. And... Coming down from the chair, I've, I've had it explained, seen it explained that he came down from the chair so that Nick could hear him because the arena was so loud. That is untenable for me. You cannot leave the chair to go hover over him. It looks like you're performing the role of a coach. Right. And then it sounds like you're performing the role of a coach. And while your actions may fall within this uh, weird kind of ambiguous interpretation of the rule his application it looks everything but you just can't do that the the coaching rules are not having on-court coaching in men's tennis is designed specifically for the men to figure things out on their own right so the moment you cause a moment of confusion as to where this has been muddied or contaminated you've done something that's entirely antithetical to the role of the umpire it's a it's an unforced error, yeah. And it's also something we have have we ever seen that before? It turns out we've seen him do it before, but not in that way. <laughs> right. Have the umpire standing over him, offering words of encouragement, mm. essentially. The USTA did conduct their investigation. They spoke to Liani. They decided that because this is his first uh, so-called offense. And because he's an exemplary umpire, they decided not to take any action, but will be monitoring his mm -hmm. actions in the future, which I feel is appropriate. I don't think anybody should be looking for this guy's job. That's outrageous. Like, let him learn from this, fix his behavior, and and move on. Let him keep his job. That's that. Yeah, the, the calls for losing his job were much for me. Having no sanction is too light mm. like you can't say well this was not appropriate and then not have any sanction because the very slightest thing that a player does that's not appropriate hell Elise Cornet did something that was appropriate mm. that was then deemed inappropriate by somebody interpreting like some random code and then she has to be she has to deal with it and just right. accept it right so like you, you can't have one set of rules for the players and then the umpires not be held to a similar standard, in in my book. Okay. As to whether that should be a firing or a suspension or a loss of pay, what I think is, at the very least, and it would have been an easy win, 
as cynical as that is on my part, an easy win for the USTA to say, well, you know, Mo is going to take a couple days off here mm. in the tournament. You right. won't see him on court, whatever. He'll probably still be paid, whatever, but at least there'd be the, again, the optics mm-hmm. of something being done about it. Because Herbert has no way of knowing whether his match was affected by this. Like, it's exactly. all it's all speculation. Yeah. And so he didn't see it in the moment, but at the end of it, he's shown it, and he's like, well, what the fuck? What just happened? Right. Now, there is a theme in this tournament of people overstepping their professional roles with regard to Nick Kyrgios. Okay. Oh, oh, all right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She, she went there. Mm-hmm. I'll let you carry there on. There seems to be something about Nick Kyrgios that makes people act inappropriately. Because, <laughs> because he bucks so many unwritten rules and conventions of what we assume an athlete is supposed to be. For better or for worse. I don't say that necessarily like that is always a good thing. Just saying he confronts us in a, in a very visceral way. Yes. Chris Fowler tweeted the other night, and he left it up, which is shocking to me. It's still there. Mm. That he went to watch the Nick Kyrgios Circus. He said, quote, his own world, enthralling, reckless, maddening, often sad. Tennis analysis is beside the point. I truly hope he gets the help he seems to need. Uh, the help he seems to need jumps out there. Uh, psychological help, I guess? Well, I mean, it could be coaching. It well, could be any number of things. Like, this well, is something that's left up to interpretation uh-huh. at this point. Until. Yes. It got worse in the replies because Chris engaged with a lot of people. Somebody said bipolar, maybe. And Chris responded, I'm not qualified to diagnose but I agree it's well beyond traditional sports psychology. Again, I truly hope he gets the help he needs. How is this still on Twitter? Like, how is it still up? This man works for ESPN as a commentator. This is so beyond the pale to me. It's so out of order. To imply that this young man has mental illness and needs help that a sports psychologist is not even equipped to address. So that's what, how serious. So what it is, is it exactly that you think he has? Right. I'm not qualified to but diagnose. He's saying, I'm not diagnosing. I will pathologize, and I will say this child has a serious problem, but I'm not qualified to diagnose. It is so reckless to me. As a, he's a professional journalist. I cannot believe that ESPN hasn't asked him to take that down. But here we are, and so there is something about Nick Kyrgios that makes people. <laughs> crazy because he he doesn't play the game the way not just that he's supposed to play the game but that people in this case chris fowler wants him to play the game Mm -hmm. and and again i don't think by saying that we're valorizing the way that nick does things no like it doesn't mean that because he doesn't play the game that the way he does it is good you but, absolutely do right, not have to like it. Right. And that's fine. Just leave but it But that's that. what I, I think there's something lost here. I think that in kind of the social media conversation about Nick, it's like if you are not defending him all the time, you're an enemy of him. Mm-hmm. And for me, I defend him probably more than I should. But right now, I want him to, well, stop being an asshole. If he doesn't want to play tennis, then don't. If he is injured don't play and get out of your own way like that's what i want from nick i want nick to do whatever he wants to do providing he's not hurting people (laughs) 
or being a dick to people. Right. Well, you know, that's the very bare minimum. But right now he is being a dick. Correct. To a lot of people. But what you just said about like what you want for him, like that's okay. a little bit that's you're again right. you're casting things you're right. onto him. And and that's what a lot of folks go through with Nick Kyrus, right? Like you have to confront your idea of what makes a good tennis player, what makes an athlete worth watching or worth supporting. Mm-hmm. They should show how appreciative and how lucky they are to be doing something that they love for a living. And we know that Nick probably doesn't love tennis that much. He'd probably rather be playing basketball. Mm-hmm. He just happens to be that gifted at tennis. And that's not something that people can wrap their heads around when they're being made to confront it in such a visceral way of what looks like tanking on occasion mm-hmm. during matches. You know, And so you try and identify what it is. You need to put you need to put it into a box to be able to like label it and make sense of it. Whereas the, the appropriate answer is just to just deal with it, let it be. However, when he's out here coming for Donna Vekic, coming for all these people on Twitter, being an ass to people, whacking balls out of stadiums, like that's something that's like, okay, yeah, buddy, you need to not do that. Right, that's a whole other thing, yes. right? We see athletes and we expect them to... Well, Kamau talked about this, and we played the audio on our last episode. We expect these kids to kill themselves for every match. Every match has to be important. Like, this is the lore around Rafael Nadal that every single point is important. And we kind of expect nothing less in our athletes, right? That they give their 100% effort all the time. That when they lose, they have to be upset about it that they show emotion in very specific ways. Mm-hmm. Anger, you can cry as long as it's about sports. You can show anger or frustration, but there are certain emotions that are pretty taboo in our sporting culture. And uh, when a player walks around the court and appears not to care, that makes people very upset. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it confronts what we expect about athletes and about the sort of, what's the word? Kind of like that Olympic spirit. Well, that, yeah. You know, when we say it all the time, whenever you're confronted with a situation where maybe you're tempted to think about an athlete and their relationship with the integrity of sport and demeaning the sport and challenging that Olympic spirit, that, that whole moralizing thing again, mm-hmm. right? Then that needs a little bit more of a, a fine combing through right to get to the bottom of what it is there because there's a lot of shit that we've been force fed to believe about sport that why why do we feel that way what is inherently good about sport that it should be upheld as Mm -hmm. this thing that's greater than everything else that's that's greater than the athletes themselves like these are people who are laboring on the court who are giving of their Mm -hmm. bodies a lot of them can barely walk by the time they're done playing. And so what about sport makes them lesser than and subservient to the game? Mm. So this is why I'm never going to take the position that one player is capable of shaming the sport of tennis. Like one player can create a spectacle of him or herself, but what is what is mythical, what is sort of superhuman about tennis itself that it can be shamed Mm -hmm. that it can be besmirched by one player like a lot of messed up shit has happened in the sport of tennis and (laughs) nick curio's tanking a set is really not one of them no 
And we see that a lot of the really fucked up stuff in tennis happens at an administrative bureaucratic level. The ones yes. who actually run the sport on a day-to-day basis, but it's the athletes who are meant to, meant to bear the burden of upholding this, this standard, this ethos of the purity of mm. their sport, which is just bullshit. Right. So, like, where I draw the line is sort of making what Nick Kyrgios does a pathology, because we don't understand him, that he must be suffering from a mental illness. The thing is, like, if you look at someone like Nick outside of sport, if you knew him in the real world, is he just kind of a dick? Like, like would you interact with him and say, oh, wow, he must have bipolar disorder? No, you'd probably just say he's an asshole. He's a 23-year-old who's mean to people sometimes, right? Or he, like, or he might be a nice guy, we don't not, know. But it's not even that serious. Exactly. Judging by some of his social media attacks this week, he's being mean. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Nazi is in the background as like his little hype man kind of boosting him up. This is where we have to be careful not to paint Nick with one large, all-encompassing brush. Because, like with all people, they contain multitudes. They have many mm-hmm. different facets. And so while he might be really good at some stuff, he's also really shit at other stuff. And for us, the stuff that we find truly objectionable is the stuff that affects other people, be it on the court or on social media. Mm-hmm. And so we transition here <laughs> to the true mess of the week. Stefanos Tsitsipas posted another introspective, whimsical emo video that Ben Rothenberg shared, and it elicited another sarcastic gif. This time it was a gif from Nick Kyrgios. Like, Nick is obsessed with this kid at this point. He's always got some commentary. And this is, I mean, this is in keeping with most people on Twitter. Like, we always have a comment. (laughs) But someone in Nick's position has more visibility, has more power when he says something rude, right? And he's been put on notice. He's been through this exact Mm. scenario just last week. Right. And so he's aware of what could be a tenuous situation. Mm -hmm. So I've said before that this jock nerd dynamic is one of my least favorites. Like the the so-called alpha jocks picking on the nerdy kid. Mm-hmm. It like it's not interesting. It's not cute. It's like very eighties teen movie. It's also very personal for a lot of gay kids because a lot of them are not the jock, right? And suffer in other ways, you know. Mm-hmm. So. I'm not going to speculate on why he does it because I'm not psychoanalyzing him like some people out here. I'm just saying it's a real kind of asshole thing to do. So this sparked a bit of a Twitter war between Nick and New York Times journalist Ben Rothenberg, who you may know. This is not the first time these two have been going back at it on Twitter. So Ben, surprisingly, struck out at Nick and said, are you going to delete this one too or actually stand by something? Which is a fair critique, because Nick does this all the time, Uh tweets something, and then deletes it. And so this sparked like a a few tweets back and forth between Ben and Nick, which was bizarre. Yeah. (laughs) It was bizarre. Kept going. Uh, You can read it. It's all still up there. Ben offered to meet up at Magnolia, the cupcake bakery in New York, so they could hash it out in person. Nick obviously declined and then ended with, like, a fat joke. So this is like Nick being petty and childish again. I don't want to spend too much time on it. It was 
surprising because Ben got in a few good digs against Nick, but it was also surprising because I'm going to be really real here and just say that as a reporter, do you want to get into it like that with a player? And that's it. But that's it. Like, I just don't, I don't think that it makes either of them look better. Like, I don't think they come out of it looking good. The part that's where it. it's, it's definitely crossed the line, I think, was when Ben said, guessing you'll be free next week, so let me know if you change your mind about the cupcake get-together. Oh, right. get which is essentially saying, dude, you're not going to be playing next week because you're going to lose. <laughs> it's it's yeah. very... I mean, he's a journalist it's covering... Very high school. He's covering tennis for a major newspaper. Like, it's just... It's... What's the word? Play yard? Strange. Yard, yard, when you're in the yard. Playground? School, playground. It's very high <laughs> school you, playground kind of Did you not have those thing. in Jamaica? <laughs> we had makeshift activities <laughs> on the playground, I guess. Was I that a know. privileged thing of me to say? Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> we didn't all have jungle gyms and right. swing sets. Mm-hmm. I broke my arm on one of those. But again, this is to your point earlier about how everybody from all facets of, of life within tennis, mm. professional or otherwise, has something to say or do with Nick. Right. In ways that are sometimes quite surprising. And then finally, Donna Vekic had something to say about the whole Liani thing. And Nick took several attempts, took a few swipes at her, and then finally came back with, sorry, I shouldn't have tweeted so quickly. Well, he didn't say sorry. Because she saw the the video going around of Leani, quote-unquote, coaching Nick. Mm. And then she had this to say. She said, didn't know umpires were allowed to give pep talks. And then he's coming back at her with, like, you're just salty because you're out of the tournament. Then he deletes that and comes back even worse, saying funny about how, you know, you get on-court coaching every week. Mm. So, like... And you still lost. Yes. And then finally, on the third attempt, said something like, I tweeted too quickly after the match. There was no apology embedded in there, uh-huh. but it was uh, as close as you're going to get. But this is the first time we're hearing from Donna Vekic after the whole dust-up from Montreal right. three years ago, mm-hmm. where Nick said on court to Stan, sorry to tell you, mate, but Kokinakis banged your girl. I don't think it needs to be said it is not a good look to attack a woman that you slut-shamed three years ago for the entire world to see. Mm-hmm. It's just not. Like, it's just not. It's a total dick move. And this is what I'm saying. Instead of saying that Nick needs help and being so paternalistic about it and saying, I really care for him, he needs psychological help, maybe he is just not a very nice person sometimes. Maybe he's a human who says some really dickish things. He's like a 24-year-old bro. And in this situation, this is not defensible. So I see a lot of people making jokes about Stan and Donna and about... Stan, you know, adopting a new daughter and all these things. It's like, this is so over. We're not defending a young man of color by being misogynistic and disgusting. Like, we're just, it's just something we're not going to do here. Everything just went at such a breakneck, frenetic speed. Mm. The fucker just kept on coming the first four days. Today felt like such a respite. It was a cool drink on a steaming Long Island day. <laughs> so you'll even take a Venus loss if it means like a total lack of drama today? I did not expect Venus to win. I 
I needed, I knew I had to go record tonight. I needed to not have my mood be wrecked by being invested <laughs> in this match. Right. So I, I and, needed to just distance myself. And Serena didn't really try any bullshit or anything. Had Venus won, Venus, Serena would have tried some, you know. That's a story for another time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shall we end the episode yeah. with our personal tribute to the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin? If you've watched any of the eight-plus-hour funeral today, you would have gotten some grasp of just how beloved she was. And not just from industry people, but if you hear the way that she's spoken about from people who live in Detroit mm-hmm. and her family members, you really get the sense that Aretha, when she was not on a global stage or on stage, she was just Auntie Riri. I think a lot of people our age were introduced to Aretha on the Divas Live special. I mean, everybody knows Respect. Like that is, you know, that's one of the mm-hmm. biggest pop songs in history. Everybody knows that. But really seeing her and and understanding what she was capable of that Divas Live special commanding the group natural woman number and even dealing with Celine Dion's bullshit <laughs> it was meant to be this big show closing group number and Aretha commandeered the whole thing she sang the first verse and then she let the other girls do some singing but she ad-libbed throughout the entire thing mm-hmm. then she sang the end and then, of course, Celine tried to sing over her at the end. I mean, this is Aretha 40 years after her debut, absolutely shutting down the stage. And so me watching that as like a 14-year-old knew who she was and got that she was important. But then I got to go back and listen to the I Never Loved a Man album, which is one of the most perfect recordings that I've ever heard. The song and the album, like there's not a bad song on it. There are so many incredible moments. Aretha, like, banging away on the piano. That was obviously a tremendous moment in my life, that very first Divas Live. Mm -hmm. I own it on DVD. I listen to many of the recordings from that show on MP3, still to this day. Mm -hmm. Having a recording of Aretha and Mariah singing Chain of Fools and hearing Mariah being deferential in song, in the moment, right, is, it's it's crazy, it's, it's awe-inspiring. And to know that they didn't have a chance to re- rehearse before that performance, mm-hmm. and Aretha introduced it as, you know, I'm going to introduce my next girlfriend. We were, you know, just in the trailer, we had a chance to sit and chat for a little bit, and we got to do a little bit of girl talk. <laughs> and then so Mariah comes on, and she doesn't have a clue when she's supposed to be coming in. At one point, she <laughs> thinks it's that time, and Aretha's like, oh no. I'm still singing. (laughs) And then Aretha starts singing this line and then she's like, take it away. And Mariah has to, in the moment, hit that note alongside the queen. Mm. And it's one of those pop moments that's a bridge of eras that is, that still you can feel the respect between the two. And that was the year that I learned of Aretha as well, even before that show, because she had just released A Rose is Still a Rose that year earlier in the year yes and that was an introduction of aretha to younger generations because it was specifically designed she had taken like seven years off from recording and if you know aretha anything about her career she recorded two albums per year for the majority of her career Mm. between the early 60s and like 1991 you know like she Mm. was one of the most prolific artists ever 
And so she takes this seven year break and comes back with A Rose is Still a Rose and she's working with Diddy. Uh, Lauren Hill wrote A Rose is Still mm-hmm. a Rose and it was specifically designed to introduce her to this new generation and it worked because I have vivid memories of being in a pharmacy in Jamaica and you know what, back then you were buying cassette tapes and it came on those kind of revolving cylinders mm. like those that yeah. had four sides and you just spin it around and you would look that this one I'm going to call it a cylinder had the, the cassette tape that you wanted you know you're, yeah. it's not a record store you're just looking for that one and even when I had Mariah's music box I'd look for just that face <laughs> if I could see the cassette tape with that oh. that right side of her face and that's where I bought A Rose is Still a Rose because like oh Aretha Franklin has a new album and I'd heard the song on the radio like I'm gonna look into this and then there was the divas live and that's where it all started Mm. and we've taken road trips where we've just listened to her music exclusively I don't think you could find an artist that has a discography and uh, like a playlist to their career that's so extensive and not just with fillers with unreal crazy good Mm -hmm. stuff I remember you actually played me her cover of Bridge Over Troubled Water. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I'd heard it, like, I don't know, 10, 10 years ago or something. And it, well, I like the original, but it kind of made me forget the original. And then when I realized that was her playing the organ solo, I was bowled over. Because I didn't realize, you know, you have this idea of Aretha as the queen of soul. Mm-hmm. But she was very much more than that. She was a musician, and then I heard that she felt self-conscious because she didn't read music. I'm like, wait a second. She played the piano and the organ like this without reading music? So she understood all of the chord changes and was able to improvise a solo like this, but didn't know how to put it into words or read it off a page. Like, wait a second. And myself growing up as a musician being so beholden to the sheet music, that's, that's just very exciting to me because it's something that I can't do. When you're young, gifted, and black, like it's it's a That's totally it's different at. ball game. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't listened or watched a YouTube video of her singing that cover live, watch her in the Grammys singing Bridge Over Troubled Water or mm-hmm. watch her live from the Fillmore West. Either of those two, it's... I, I've told you privately, and I guess this is no public, should it ever come to it, that you're in the position to make that decision, I want that played at my funeral. Mm-hmm. Because it, it's it's her, what she does with her voice on that song, it's it's beyond description. So favorite Aretha songs? Too many to list, mm-hmm. honestly. One of the things that she did so brilliantly was cover other people's music so well. Yeah. Can you imagine? That's why Dionne Warwick probably hates her to this day. <laughs> She's so bitter because she She's, took some of her oh songs and made them her own. Dion was supposed to be the Burt Bacharach singer. And Aretha just snatched a few of those songs from her. But she did say a little prayer for her. <laughs> While she was doing it. I've, actually, a few of my favorite songs are original Aretha Franklin compositions. Mm-hmm. Um, a Spirit in the Dark is one of my absolute favorite songs. Not just by her, ever. And Rocksteady is also an mm-hmm. Aretha Franklin composition, one of her funk dalliances. And um, one of my kind of poppy R&B Motown sound, even though she didn't record for Motown, a lot of people don't know that, was a, a baby, baby, sweet baby, mm-hmm. since you've been gone. She d- decidedly didn't record for Motown. 
I mean, she grew up in Detroit. Right. She could have. She even said, you know, we were very close with the Gordys uh-huh. and my father. But what that really decided. translated to was we thought they were too budget for our yeah. aspirations, right? She signed with Atlantic in 67. Everything changed. She had been recording with Columbia for many years, mm-hmm. became a superstar with Atlantic. And they put a focus on her behind the piano at Atlantic and Never Loved a Man Was Born. Mm-hmm. Some of the other covers I love, obviously Bridge Over Troubled Water, You're All I Need to Get By, Let It Be. You know I'm not a big Beatles fan. But what she did with Let It Be is just crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, the song is a gorgeous song. Uh, and she actually hesitated to record it because she was worried that it was about drugs. <laughs> because Lennon and McCartney wrote it. Oh my god. I just recently, with all the hours I've spent in the last week combing through her videos on YouTube, discovered her cover of Didn't I Blow Your Mind? Which is one of really? my all-time favorite songs. Oh. And I just absolutely oh, I love it. it. It's so good. It has a different... It's sung in a different way. Mm. And then, of course, I say a little prayer, right. right? Which is a little bit too mainstream for my mind's eye at this point. Like it, It's, not, it's one of my, not one of my go-to Aretha songs, but it's something you have to mention. Yeah. Right? My two favorite Aretha songs, I Knew You Were Waiting with George Michael. Mm-hmm. And Which also has, like, the best video. It does. And you mock me endlessly for my love of 80s music, and it's the perfect melding of it, of the 80s mm. for me. Aretha finding her way after Atlantic, with now with Arista, trying to make her way through the 80s because disco wasn't kind to her. The disco who, era. You know, who's who, who, Jumping Pink Jack Cadillac, Flash. Yeah. And then George Michael, who was the king of the 80s, along with Michael, Michael Jackson. There's one line in that song that I take with me always. And it's, when I think of all the disappointments, I just laugh. I just laugh. And then they go into the, mm-hmm. the chorus again. And it, there's few things more uplifting to me because life is gonna have disappointments. You know? You're gonna get shit on all the time. And to think that you'll get to a point where you can look back at it and just be like, boy, that was a trip because <laughs> shit's good right now. You know? uh-huh. And Aretha and George said so. so. And then Angel. Which I believe was written by her sister, Carolyn. It was. And the intro to that song, Aretha says, I got a call from my sister, Carolyn, the other day. And she said, Aretha, I've got something to play for you. Why don't you come on by? Or something to that effect. (laughs) And she said, rather than going through a whole drawn out thing, I'll let the melody play on the box. And then the song starts. Man, the talent in that family. To have your sister write this absolute beast of a song. Mm. And for her to sing it so effortlessly and just soar into her upper register the way she does, it's, it's ethereal, it's magic. That song is magic to me. All right, so we ended this episode on a happy note. Yes. Because this week has been wild. I'm hoping for some better tennis and less drama. Amen. You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at TheBodySurf. Check out our new logo. Check out our new Instagram stories. At Twitter, I'm Elliot JMR. I'm James, by the way. Two L's, two T's. I'm Jonathan. You can find me at tennis underscore John. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon. Till next time. Now I'm going to pass on that one. (laughs)